0: Father God, we need to hear from You. We need to hear You speak through Your Word. We need You and Your Spirit to show us Jesus. So, Jesus, may You be magnified and glorified. Spirit, open our eyes so that we can see wondrous things in Your Word. We pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.
1: The book of Titus was written by the Apostle Paul. To his trusted brother in the faith, Titus, around 66 AD. Paul commissioned Titus to restore order to a network of churches on Crete, a Greek island known for treacherous, ungodly behavior. The churches in Crete had slowly been influenced by leaders who compromised the integrity of the church through their shoddy teaching and behavior. The main problem was their assimilation to Greek concepts of God in favor of belief in the one true God. Paul reminds Titus that God's character demonstrates faithfulness and truth, in contrast to the deceit and inconsistency of Zeus. To enact change, Paul charges Titus to appoint new leaders to each church, mature husbands and fathers who display integrity, generosity, and devotion to Jesus. Their responsibility is to teach the good news of Jesus, avoiding the deceit and selfish gain demonstrated by previous leadership. Paul describes the ideal Christ-following household made up of wise, self-controlled men and women, exemplifying godly character to the younger generations. On their own, this way of life would be unsustainable. It is only through the power of God's grace that they and we can strive after Jesus' new value systems and represent the character of God to the surrounding culture.
0: Begin with this question: What are you a fan of? I see, I see a couple of Packers uh, jerseys. I see a little bit less Vikings than I did uh, last week, and I wonder if there's some shame behind this. I don't know. I'm not in the football world, but if you've spent any amount of time on the internet in the past few years, you've probably heard the term fandom or fanbase. It refers to people who are united by their passion and enthusiasm for any given thing, a sports team, a movie, a game, a book, and so on. From the Minnesota Vikings to the TV show Vikings, from Doctor Who to DC Comics, we love to obsess about the things that bring us joy. And I'm no exception. Insert obligatory Lord of the Rings reference right there. Uh, Of course, people have been fans of things ever since the Olympics were on Mount Olympus. But the internet has taken it to another level because now we have a place to talk about our niche interests and share content with each other. And in fact, fan subcultures are now a sociological phenomenon that's been studied and analyzed, including the ways that they interact with each other and sometimes become toxic. Have you ever heard someone who is passionate about either Star Trek or Star Wars talk about people of the other fandom? And while most sports rivalries are lighthearted, occasionally you meet someone and you think, this is real for you. Like, you actually hate people who, uh, who like the other team. See, as fans, we don't just enjoy things, we become zealous for them. It becomes part of our identity and our reputation. This is part of how we were made. We were made to be shaped and to grow around the things that we are passionate about. Now, how does this connect to Paul's letter to Titus? Well, Titus was sent to the island of Crete, which had as ba- about as bad a reputation as you could get in the ancient world. See, Crete claimed that it was the hometown of the god Zeus. He was their mascot, if you will. And as fans of Zeus, I don't know what you would call them, like Zeus heads, Zeusers. uh, Fans of Zeus, the Cretans acted like their heroes. They would punch things and sleep around and party hard. It was a violent, frat house kind of place. It was notorious for people betraying you and stabbing you in the back, sometimes literally. Uh, It was infamous for sexual corruption. It was a a home for liars and cheats. The Roman statesman Cicero said, Moral principles are so divergent on Crete that the Cretans consider highway robbery honorable. In the letter to Titus, at one point, Paul quotes a philosopher from Crete, Epimenides. One of the Cretans, a prophet of their own, said, Cretans are always liars, evil beasts, lazy gluttons. So Paul's saying, Well, he said it, not me. It's, it's in this place, this island, that Paul sends Titus to plant a church. He says, this is going to be a strategic place for us to start a, a Jesus fandom, if you want to use that phrase, to start a church, and talk about a clash of cultures that's going to occur. So, if you were Titus tasked with this, how, what would you do? This notorious island, you're meant to start a little Jesus community. Uh, how do we live a countercultural life and create a subculture of light within a place of darkness? Well, many of us would be drawn toward two opposite extremes. The first extreme is the legalistic approach, where you teach the people in Crete that they should change their behavior. Act right. Sober up. Get it together. Rules, guidelines, discipline. That's what it means to follow Jesus. And there were some teachers of the law in Crete who taught just that. Now, the second extreme is the permissive approach, teaching people in Crete that they should just do whatever they want to without needing to change their behavior. It's all good, man. You do you, and God's got you no matter what. Express yourself. Live your story. Freedom, choice, and happiness is what it means to follow Jesus. And there were also teachers who were teaching that as well. And so the the problem in Crete is that the church was being pulled in both directions. It was causing reputation problems as well as the people saw Christians and the way they lived and said, well, they're no different than anyone else on this island. They don't offer anything compelling or different. Why follow Jesus when I could have way more fun following Zeus? But Paul teaches a better way, which he calls sound or health. Uh, the Greek word is hugiaino it's where we get the word hygiene, and it means accurate teaching that is lived out well. So, I put the first verse of our passage up there, Titus 2.1, but as for you, teach what accords with sound or healthy doctrine. Now, when we see the word doctrine, we immediately think of head knowledge, theology. But as we'll see, Paul is talking about both what you know and what you do. It's a passion for both believing the right things and doing the right things. Health is following Jesus with our whole lives, devoting all our energy to Him, being an obsessed fan. Health is holistic allegiance to Jesus. So Paul's core aim is to answer the question, what is a healthy church? And how can a healthy church make the gospel compelling to the world? It's not when God's people are zealous for strict rules. It's not when God's people are zealous for personal freedom. Rather, Paul is teaching, and this is kind of the big idea of the passage if you were a note taker, uh, the people of God must be zealous to adorn the gospel of grace with good works. We must be zealous to adorn the gospel of grace with good works. For Paul, this is what it means to be a healthy church, and not just healthy for us internally as Christians, but healthy for the watching world who can see in us Jesus, light and life, grace and good works. So, we're going to unpack that big idea in two parts. First, Paul is describing six pictures of good works in the church, and then he explains that the power for doing good works can only be found in the gospel of grace. So, that's where we're going. Let's go ahead and open up Titus 2. We'll start reading in verse 1 here. These are six pictures of good works. "'But as for you, teach what accords with sound doctrine. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine.' so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Bond servants are to be submissive to their own masters in everything. They are to be well-pleasing, not argumentative, not pilfering, but showing all good faith, so that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. Now, as I've said, there are six groups that Paul addresses within the church here, older men, older women, younger women, younger men, Titus slash church leaders in general, and slaves. And Paul is describing for each of them what it looks like to be a follower of Jesus in Crete. Now, I'm actually going to punt on the last two groups and focus exclusively on the first four uh, for a couple of reasons, mainly time. But Also because we talked about the role of godly leaders two weeks ago in 1 Timothy, and there's a lot of similarities between those passages. And second, we're going to discuss slavery in the Bible at length next week when we study the book of Philemon. It's a really big topic, and I want to do it justice. So, we're going to save that for next week. So, while we won't have time to explore all those groups, I just want to put out two general principles for us to remember as we're reading this. First, Paul is using Greek words and concepts that were known in this culture so that the Cretan Christians could understand what he meant. So, when he says the word self-controlled, he says it a few times, we have an understanding of what that means. We, we picture a self-controlled person, and the Cretans did as well, based on writings at the time and virtues that were popularized in their culture. So, Paul is actually making a very subtle cultural move here. Sometimes, he affirms things about Cretan culture. He'll say, look, you uphold this virtue, or you say you uphold this virtue. You say it's a good thing to be self-controlled, and it aligns with the way of Jesus. But then, he also critiques other things, as we'll see in a moment. And the Bible often does this when it's discussing issues in culture. It'll both affirm and critique. The second principle to remember is that Paul is concerned here not just with relationships within the church, he's also very concerned with the reputation of the church. Three times in this passage, Paul shares the reason behind these instructions. Did you see that? Verse 5, in order that the word of God may not be reviled. Verse 8, in order that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. Verse 10, in order that in everything they may adorn the doctrine of God our Savior. As we've studied the epistles in this thread series, we've talked a lot about gospel culture, haven't we? We've talked a lot about the way that we should treat each other within the church. But here what Paul is emphasizing is how the church is perceived by the wider society. This isn't a marketing ploy, it's an issue of witness. See, if Christian citizens can easily dismiss Jesus because of how His disciples are behaving, then the gospel has lost all credibility. Paul expects that people will reject Jesus because they don't like his claims, they don't believe in his claims. But the issue in Crete is that people were rejecting Jesus because the conduct of his church was unappealing, uninviting. It didn't offer a compelling picture of how Jesus can change our lives. So so Paul's heart is to bring the church to a place of health, which, as we've said, is holistic allegiance to Jesus. So with that being said, those principles in mind, let's take a a brief look at these first four groups. I'm going to start reading in verse 2 again. Older men are to be sober-minded, dignified, self-controlled, sound in faith, in love, and in steadfastness. Older women likewise are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. Now, notice there are no ages listed here on who qualifies as older or younger. Amount of gray hairs? I don't know. But perhaps it's intentional that he's not laying it out. Everyone from zero to 99 plus is included in this passage. And if you think about it, we're always older and younger than other people. Uh, Even though I'm 30, which I consider to be relatively young, uh, if I were to talk to a college student, I would be filling the role of an older man. And according to Paul, older men and women are to have a regal nobility about them. He uses a lot of words here from other writers at this time that were used to describe kings and queens, royal dignitaries. And what does this regal nobility look like? It's a life filled with integrity and total devotion to Jesus rather than to indulgence and pleasure. Dignity means a life that is lifted up from the cheap and the flashy to that which is noble and good, the best things that you can devote your life to. One of my favorite church fathers, John Chrysostom, he preached a sermon in this, on this passage in the fourth century, and what he focused on in this passage were all the ways that, that, uh, that we as human beings fail and how Paul is addressing the opposite of that. So, he says, you know, sometimes older people, they have a slowness to them, a timidity, a a forgetfulness, an irritability. Sometimes we're beside ourselves, rave because of wine or sorrow. He's pretty blunt. He's calling out kind of the specific patterns he saw in his congregation. Now, Paul's goal here isn't to shame us. It's to give us a positive vision for what we could look like in our old age. He's describing how older people in the church must neither waste away in retirement nor waste their last years in self-indulgent luxuries, but rather older people are to keep going in steadfast faithfulness. You might have heard John Piper's famous Seashells sermon uh, it's one of his more famous sermons. He preached it 25, 30 years ago. In it, he said, we, we, we work often to strive toward retirement. That's kind of our end goal, because then, once we cross that threshold, then we can enjoy the good life, whatever that means in our mind, you know, taking the boat out whenever we want, collecting seashells, playing pickleball. I don't know what retirees do. Uh, but that is not the good life. That is not the biblical vision of old age. The biblical vision is that you are most productive in your older years, but because you are investing in the faith and the development of the younger generations, you keep walking with Jesus as models of godly character in your church. It's like Kyle taught last week in 2 Timothy 2, "What you've heard from me in the presence of many witnesses entrust to faithful men" who will be able to teach others also the generations of faith, legacies of love in the church. So, Rock Hill, if you are a follower of Jesus and you are older today than you were yesterday, then this is the good life that you are aiming toward. What do you want to be when you grow up? I hope it's this. Kings and queens of noble character, Disciples of Jesus who pass on our lessons of discipleship to those who come after us. I recently learned about the story of Lucy Hutchinson. She lived from 1620 to 1681. She was a poet, a translator. She had had eight kids. And she is notable for writing the only known theological treatise written by a woman in the 17th century. That's pretty amazing. The only known theological treatise written by a woman in the 17th century, it's called On the Principles of the Christian Religion. And that's pretty amazing, but what's even more amazing is why she wrote it. She didn't write it to get a sweet book deal or become a professor at a university. She wrote it to pass down her faith to her daughter Barbara before she grew up and headed out on her own. She had this 15, 16-year-old daughter, she was theologically trained, and she thought, the best thing that I can do to spend my time is to write a book explaining Christianity for my daughter. In a letter attached to the book, she explained that she could have just bought her daughter a a cheap, you know, affordable, short book written by professionally trained theologians, but she believed it was her duty to use her gifts to pass down her faith to her daughter. Now, few of us, very few of us, are going to write a book of theology for our children. Probably very, very few of us should write a book of theology for our children. We have better things to do. Uh, And yet, all of us who follow Jesus are called to be concerned not only with our own faith, but also with the faith of those who come after us, and not just our children, but the younger people who, when you look around this room, who you see, what if you took a little bit of Responsibility for them, or at least a desire for them to grow in their faith. This is why, when we dedicate children, we say these words Rock Hill, will you, with joy and thanksgiving as Christ's church, with God's help, commit to come alongside these parents in raising this child to love and serve Jesus? Will you commit to diligently praying for these kids so that someday they would choose to love Jesus too? This is the family of God passing down the inheritance to the younger generations. So, let's talk about those younger groups. I'll start reading at the end of verse 3. Older women are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. Likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled, Apparently, the younger men in Crete really just needed to focus on one thing, self-control, which is the ability to think reasonably and contain yourself from unhealthy urges. Like I said, in Crete, they had a bit of a frat culture where young guys could just get away with reckless fighting and sleeping around and binge drinking. Nobody was going to call them out on that. I've noticed in my own life that few things are so difficult for us younger people as to overcome the desire for fun and pleasure. I just spend a lot of energy thinking about doing what I want to do, doing what sounds fun, having experiences. So, the challenge that Paul puts forward is to pursue satisfaction in Jesus above all. We pursue a deeper pleasure that controls us, and that deeper pleasure is a relationship with God. The instructions to younger women are interesting. It seems like it was common and fashionable at the time either to avoid marriage entirely or to get married but neglect your family and spend all your time partying. It was girls and I out every night. Uh, but Paul describes a different kind of life, one that is self controlled like the young men, but is also committed to making the home a place of life giving joy. Now, some of you might have chafed uh, when Paul says working at home in verse 5. But when Paul says working at home, he is not saying that women should only work in the home. This isn't a biblical version of get in the kitchen, woman. Uh, In fact, the the whole concept of working at home is is, uh, confused in our modern mind. Uh, In biblical times, husbands and wives often worked together, so our modern categories of strong separation between work and home uh, is more blended in the ancient world. So Paul's not saying that. He's also not saying that the home is unimportant or it's secondary to your fun, your friendship, your career. Rather, he's saying, the home is meant to be, for both men and women, central and at the core of our lives. Now, why is that? Because if your work is fulfilling, you love your job, and your friendships are vibrant, and you're having a lot of fun, but your home life is a wreck, then your life is a wreck. And by the flip side, if your job is awful, it's a slog, you have no friends, you're not having any fun and life is drudgery, but your home is flourishing, (laughs) then it is a safe refuge from everything else in your life. In some ways, we are defined by the quality of our homes. The Irish playwright George Bernard Shaw said, a happy family is but an earlier heaven. So, Paul's not describing domesticity like the 1950s. This is a countercultural call for husbands and wives to say, I put my family first, even above myself, even above my own desires. They are my priority, above my selfishness. We will enjoy our home. When I officiate weddings, I have a, a section where I offer blessings to the couple, and this is one of the blessings that I give. May your home be a refuge from the storms of life, not only for yourselves, but also for any who may be your guests. May your home be a haven for the weary, a source of life for the discouraged, and a beautiful testimony to the world. So, taking all four of these pictures together, we get a sense of what it looks like for the redeemed people of God to make God known by their good works. See, what's interesting in the book of Titus is that most of the time in Paul's writings, he moves from theology to behavior. Here's the gospel, and then here's how it should affect your life. But here he reverses the order. He talks about behavior first, and in the passage we're about to read, he'll talk about the gospel. Why is that? Well, I think it's because how our lives are, what we do with our lives, is what those outside the church see first. People don't see what we believe they see what we do. Martin Luther wrote, because the heathen, as non-Christians, cannot see our faith, they ought to see our works and then hear our doctrine and then be converted. So, Paul's not saying that you are saved, forgiven, redeemed, accepted by God because of good behavior, as we'll see in a moment. Rather, our obedience to Jesus is a visible and necessary aspect of our witness to the world. We're called to live as models of the gospel. I I love the word adorn in verse 10. Our lives adorn or decorate the doctrine of God our Savior. The lights and the ornaments are not a Christmas tree, but it's really not a Christmas tree unless you decorate it. In fact, the decorations tell you that it's not just a tree, it's a Christmas tree. And in the same way, good works don't save you but good works show what you believe. It strikes me that there's actually a connection between the Christmas tree metaphor and the the fandom metaphor. Real fans dress up. (laughs) They buy merch. They put stickers on their water bottles and cars and, you know, phones. Uh, Fans adorn themselves. And and how do we do that with Jesus? Paul says we do it with good works. Jesus said, every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. So, do you want to know whether somebody is passionate about Jesus or not? It's not just about what they say. Paul says, look at the decorations. What do they do? In this way, the gospel proves its redemptive power in the way it changes how we live. So, going back to the big idea, the people of God must be zealous to adorn the gospel of grace with good works. And this is the dynamic that Paul's going to explore in the next verses, the power for good works in the gospel of grace. So, read with me, starting in verse 11. For the grace of God has appeared, bringing salvation for all people, Let no one disregard you. Verses 11 to 14 are actually one sentence in Greek. I think it's one sentence in the English as well. And and quick grammar lesson. Can you see what the subject of that sentence is? What's the subject of the sentence? Grace. Grace. It's the word grace. For the grace of God has appeared. Grace is Paul's one-word summary of the gospel. And it means generous, unmerited love. What does it mean to be saved? It means to be saved by grace, a salvation freely given to sinners who believe that Jesus died and rose again for them. It's as though Paul is expecting the objection of somebody reading his letters. Like, hey, Paul, why are you talking so much about behavior and how we should live? Are we saved by works? Are you a legalist? And Paul says, no, 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 no. For The grace of God has appeared. And what does this grace do? Bringing salvation for all people, what else does it do? Training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright, and godly lives in the present age. Do you see the balance here between grace and obedience? If grace is the subject of the sentence, what does grace do? It appears in Jesus, It brings salvation, it trains us to abandon a life apart from God, and it trains us to live in a godly way. Verses 11 and 12 deal a death blow to any teaching that separates salvation from the command to obey God. Not only has God's grace saved us, it also has the ongoing task of teaching us to live righteously. It's the classic line from John Calvin, you've probably heard, heard it before it is therefore grace or faith alone which justifies yet the faith which justifies is not alone just as it is the heat alone of the sun which warms the earth and yet in the sun it is not alone because it is constantly conjoined with light you can never separate the sun's heat from its light just like you can never separate salvation and obedience In theological terms, justification is never separated from sanctification, or it was put this way uh, a little while ago in a past generation. Jesus is both our Savior and our Lord. Grace is not just the power of salvation in the past, it is also the source of power for living like Jesus in the present. In verse 14, Paul explains the gospel this way, on the cross, Jesus gave Himself for us What happened from that? What was the result? One, to redeem us from all lawlessness, and two, to purify for Himself a people for His own possession who are zealous for good works, salvation and obedience, redemption and purification, Now that phrase, zealous for good works, that's a pretty strong phrase. It means passion, enthusiasm, obsession, radical longing to look like Jesus. Christians are a unique people. We're called by Jesus. We're purified by him. And we're not to be occasionally interested in doing what he says, but to carry the title, I am a zealot for good works. I'm a zealot for looking like Jesus in my life. And it is all from God's grace that not only brought salvation, but also brings the necessary outcome of our salvation, which is to deny that which is ungodly and to pursue that which is godly with passion. Now, let me tell you why this matters. If you don't understand this. You will not be able to thrive as a Christian because you will swing back and forth between this. I should choose only grace or I should choose only obedience. What I want you to see is that grace empowers both. Grace empowers salvation and obedience. On the one hand, you might either say, I have to measure up to God. I have to work hard. I got to clean up my life and come to God. And that will either fill you up with pride because you're deluding yourself, or it will crush you when you fail. Or on the other hand, you might say, well, God's grace says He doesn't care how I live. And then you're going to find yourself drifting further and further away from God because you're not living according to His wisdom and His ways. Grace leads to good works. The Apostle Paul put it this way in Ephesians 2, for by grace you have been saved through faith. And this is not your own doing, it's the gift of God, not as a result of works, so that no one may boast. For we are His workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which God prepared beforehand that we should walk in them, saved by grace through faith, so that you could walk in good works." The people of God must be zealous to adorn the gospel of grace with good works. This is not righteousness by getting your life together. This is the message of the full news of grace, a grace that redeems and purifies us. There's a little phrase in verse 13 that I don't want us to miss. Waiting for our blessed hope, the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior Jesus Christ. This whole passage is so wonderful in the way that it illustrates past, present, and future. Just read through it again, and you'll see this. In the past, God's grace saved us as Jesus gave himself for us on the cross, redeeming us and purifying us by his blood. In the present, God's grace trains us to turn from sin and to run toward holiness with zeal in our hearts. Meanwhile, we're waiting, because in the future... God's grace will unveil its grand finale. Jesus will appear again. He appeared once as a humble servant, but when he appears again, he will come in his full glory, judging sin and evil, making all things new, wiping every tear from our eyes, destroying death once and for all. I once went to Florence, and I I saw this painting on the Duomo cathedral there. It's on the ceiling. Uh, It's kind of small, but at the top there's a Latin phrase. It says, "Ecce homo, behold the man. This is the phrase that Pilate said when he showed Jesus to the crowds who were calling for his blood. They flogged Jesus. They stripped him naked. They put a crown of thorns on him. And Pilate presents him to the crowd and says, behold the man. What do you want to do with him? And they shout, crucify And what I love about this is that this artist has taken that phrase and he's flipped it on its head. He's imagined what it's going to look like when Jesus returns, when we behold the man, not in his humiliation, but in his exaltation. Behold the man, the king of glory. Everything we have longed for. This is what Paul calls our blessed hope. Another way you could translate it would be our our happy hope. The hope of the good life the fulfillment of all of our hopes and longings, the satisfaction of every passion in our souls, the completion of every joy. Brothers and sisters, we are waiting for the blessed hope. And while we wait with this confident anticipation, God's grace is purifying us and training us to look more and more like our Savior. That is why the people of God must be zealous to adorn the gospel of grace with good works. Why? Because God is zealous for you. He is zealous for your good. He is zealous for you to understand how much He loves you, how much He longs to remake you into what you are meant to be. And one day... When we behold the man and Jesus comes back, he will remake us into everything we should have been. He will make all things new. We behold one another in our splendor, all centered around Jesus. That is what it means to be a healthy church to a watching world. There is a lot in this verse. We didn't get a chance to cover all of it, but in verse 15, Paul's charge to Titus is to declare these things, to exhort and to rebuke. So, with the remaining time I have left, I'd like to try and do that for us here with just a few questions of application. First, if you are not a Christian, will you believe that the grace of God has appeared for you? Will you believe that you are lost You are far from God, but that he has come near. Will you believe that you have spent your life, your energy and your passion, pursuing things that will not satisfy you? Will you believe that Jesus can meet every longing in your soul? Will you believe that Jesus has lived for you, that he's died for you, that he's risen again for you? Will you wait with faith for that blessed hope when we see Jesus again, when the best thing that will ever happen to you is seeing Jesus appear. Whatever fandom you follow, whatever fills your heart with passion and zeal, whatever hobbies you have, however hard you try to live a good life, however much you fill your life with pleasure, nothing will satisfy, nothing will save, but the grace of God for you. He loves you. He forgives you. He welcomes you. Second question. Christian, is your past, present, and future defined by the gospel of grace? We are not a legalistic people or a permissive people. We are people who are redeemed and purified by grace. This is health, it's a passion for believing the right things and doing the right things, all under the banner of grace? Are you resting in the past declaration of Jesus that it is finished, that your salvation is accomplished, that there is nothing you could do that would make God love you more, and there is nothing you have done that makes Him love you less? Are you resting and relying on God's grace to give you power to renounce sin, and to pursue Christ-likeness with vigor and joy? Are you waiting and longing for the blessed hope when you get to see Jesus face to face? Brothers and sisters, may the first thought of your morning not be how much you have to do today, how much you did yesterday. May the first thought of your morning be grace. Grace upon grace. He loves me, He loves me, He loves me. When you do work, or you rest, you fill your time during the day, may it all be filtered through this all-controlling idea of grace, grace. When your eyelids close, may your one meditation of your soul be grace. When you carry the weight of the day on your shoulders all the things you did and didn't do all the ways you succeeded and failed all the things you've done wrong all the things you've done right may your last thought of the day be grace last question which of these good works deserves your energy right now here's what i mean Verses 1 to 10 are full of character qualities and virtues that are consistent with the gospel of Jesus. These are the decorations that adorn the gospel. And Paul says that we're to be zealous for good works. So is there anything mentioned here that stirs you, that fills you with a sense of, I long to be that way, I long to, of, of people to see my life and have them see Jesus in this character quality? It, What would it look like for you to devote energy toward learning and growing and maturing in one or two of these good things? I I know hunting season is coming up, and there's a lot of energy spent toward hunting, and that's good. It's good that we have all kinds of hobbies and passions. I love that. It's It's what gives life flavor. And yet, can we spend as much energy pursuing character? Pursuing Christ likeness, adorning our lives, adorning the gospel with good works. For example, perhaps you notice that you are not a very self controlled person. You just kind of do things without thinking. You're not very disciplined. You stumble into relational conflicts, and you go, how did I end up here? You, you speak rashly. You think, oh, I really shouldn't have said that. Oh, I really shouldn't have said that either. You simply lose control of yourself. Time passes you without you noticing. You don't live an intentional life. When you look at, back at the past few years, you're like, where was I? Like, did I even live my own life? What if you said for the next few months, I'm going to be zealous fixated, focused on learning self-control, like Jesus. Not to earn your salvation or your self-worth, we're still under grace here, but because your life isn't consistent with the gospel you say you believe. You're missing the adornment. And so, you pray things like, Father, teach me self-control like Jesus. You sit at Jesus' feet. Jesus was always in control, and so you study His ways, the way that He spoke and He listened. The intentionality of every conversation and action. You you seek out older men and women whom you perceive to be good at self-control. They look like a a self-controlled person, and you ask them for help. You fall into the grace of God when you fail, and you trust in the grace of God to train you in this. And sure, you're not learning a marketable skill, per se. Nobody puts on their resume. Uh, I've learned a lot about how to be self-controlled. Do you want to hire me? But people will notice Over time, those closest to you, your family, your friends, your coworkers, your neighbors, over time, someone who isn't a Christian may ask you, something is different about you. I I can't put my finger on it. What is it? And then you have an opportunity to say, ah, you're seeing the merch. (laughs) You're seeing the Jesus fandom come out on me. I'm a follower of Jesus. And because He's saved me and given me a new life, I want to live more like Him the decor of your life pointed people to the real thing, the gospel of grace that changes who we are and how we live. It's inviting Jesus and the Spirit to be an interior decorator of your soul. Redesign it, because I want to look more like you. Let me pray for God's help in this. Father God, it's by grace that we can even come and talk to you. The holy God who made us, who loves us. As we walk out of here, going about our weeks, may Your grace appear in us, may it train us. Jesus, we long to see You face to face. We can't wait for You to come back. We want You to make all things new. We want You to make us new. But until then, we pray and we rely on You for all.